The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Here's our intro. Lord, teach us to pray. This request from Jesus' disciples not only reveals their personal desire, but offers a lasting impression of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' life, the perfect life, was a praying life. The intimacy and understanding between Jesus and the Father is available to every person who desires to know God today. Teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Today we find ourselves in the second week of our new sermon series, Talking to God, a History of Prayer. And if you remember, we talked about last week when people began to cry out to God which is like our first evidence of prayer that we notice. And I think it's easy for us to kind of see that and think, you know, today, as we're walking around today and we're in our relationships with people today and we look at prayer and we think about prayer and everything we know about prayer, it's kind of like we see that and we go, well, that's how it's always been. Because that's how we understand it to always have been. However, if you recall last week as Daniel was talking, there was no prayer in the garden Because Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and enjoyed complete communion with him. But you know, with fall and sin that had entered the garden, there was separation. And you know, then there was that whole Cain and Abel situation where Cain killed Abel. And then not too far after, Seth came and that was when man started to first cry out to God. And as I was thinking about that first communication, I was kind of thinking about, you know, communication in our world today and how that plays out. And we have so many ways that we communicate with each other. Um, And there's a purpose that I'm going to take this route, and I'll tell you later. And one is that, you know, we can talk to each other before and after service. We can go to lunch with one another, and we can have coffee with one another. If we are really interested in uh, the technological world, we can send texts to each other, emails to each other. We can even send cards or letters like Melissa Bowers does. Have you ever received a card from her? Her print is so fine that you would swear it was printed. But why do we do that? We do that to build relationship with one another and we communicate to convey a message to the one that we're communicating with. This idea to understand and be understood. My father once told me because I had worked for a Greek family-run restaurant for many years, and I came up with this thing that I kept doing as a tagline to every statement I would make. I'd go, you know what I mean? And my dad and I were on the phone because he lives in New York, so we're having this conversation. As as we're talking, my dad goes, Jake, it's been 10 years, and I still have no idea what you mean. And that's funny, right? Because it is funny, but the reality is it also shows us something about communication. No matter how you say things sometimes, no matter how often you say things, sometimes the person that's listening doesn't hear what you're saying. And they don't know what you mean. And it's challenging and it's hard. Or how about when you're explaining something to someone and they need you to re-explain it a million times to understand? I hate that. Or maybe someone expresses something to you and then you finally respond and you're like, I'll take the moment to respond. And you respond and you you are so detailed in your response. But then someone else comes up to you later and tells you that the person that you were talking to felt like they weren't heard. Right? Ugh. 
And if you're like me, you begin to think critically about the conversation or you attempt to find where the communication went wrong and then you start thinking of new ways to say what you said before to express this true meaning that you hope that they're going to get. And what we're hoping for, and this is annoying to the person that didn't feel heard, if you go back to them and you say, I think what I might have said, right? But who's guilty of that? I know I am. Um, We're hoping for this real aha moment where the person responds by saying, so what you mean is... Or did you really mean that? Or what you said was? Or, wait, no, what you want from me is? Because we want to be understood. And sometimes what you're explaining or saying seems impossible to the one that you're talking to. So today I'm going to share a similar story like that in Scripture. A man has been communicating with God for a very long time. And we talked about this last week. And the reason that I wanted to talk about all the varying kinds of ways that we communicate with each other this morning was because God, in the story that we're looking at today, communicates with our main character in a way that is just another form of communicating with mankind. Instead of using the word prayer in the text this morning, you're going to see the word vision. And I do not want that word to hold us up or to confuse us. I just want you to look at it as another way for God to communicate with mankind. And our text, where this story is coming from, is from Genesis 15. And you can read a lot of the background of the story from about the halfway point of Genesis 11 all the way through 15. um, If you're looking at how the story fits in the overall story of the Bible. But um, here's the story. Can I get everybody to close your eyes? I really want you to experience this as a story, like story time, right? So, we're going to start a little earlier than our text for some background, because I think it's really important for us to understand this. So, we're going to start where Terah, who is Abraham, or who's Abram's father, his son Abram, Abram's wife Sarai, and his grandson Lot have set out from her from home in Ur of the Chaldeans to settling in Haran. Not long after. God calls Abraham to leave his country, his people, and his father's household to go to the land that he is going to show them. God has made Abram a promise to make him a great nation, to bless him, and to make him a blessing. Abram is 75 at the time of this story, so not a young man by any means. And Lot, his nephew, decides to go with him. So Abram and Lot pack up all their belongings that they have, gathered from them, gathered to them from their time in Haran and head towards Canaan. There are a lot of interesting stories along the way, so I encourage you to read those, like I said earlier. On their journey, you will notice that because of a famine, Abram travels through Egypt where he lies and says that Sarai is his sister so that the people of Egypt would let him live. The reason for that is if they knew Sarai was his wife, they would more than likely kill Abram and then take her. So these are nice folks, right? However, they find out the truth that Abram has God with him, so they send him on his way after finding out that he is, in fact, Sarai's husband. And later in the story, Abram and Lot have both become considerably wealthy, and arguments start to begin between their helping and hired hands. And so instead of creating tension between their two camps, they decide to separate and settle in two different areas. Abram's nephew Lot moves to the area by Sodom, and Abram settles in Canaan. So Sodom was wicked and were sinning greatly against God at this time. 
And after settling in, we see the land divided. Many of the unified kings were no longer getting along, and they decided to go to war against each other. A, a war breaks out where we see neighboring kings allying with one another to conquer the others. And in the thick of the battle, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and the people's goods and food were plundered. And during that war, during that tension, Lot is carried off into, into captivity, and then there's a survivor who runs and tells Abram, and Abram, who is being of great wealth, and we see this um, in Genesis, because he has 318 trained men born of his household, splits up his men to go and rescue his nephew. And Abram rescues Lot, the king of Sodom, comes to Abram to offer him goods and wealth for helping him defeat the kings that they were against, but Abram declines. Abram declines because he's made an oath to God that he would not accept anything from Sodom or Gomorrah or any other people in Canaan so that no one other than God could be associated with the success and wealth of Abram. So now we're going to focus in on the main story. Um, there's some dialogue that takes place in this chapter, and I, and I didn't want it to kind of seem weird that he was asking a question that might not have been explained. So here's our main story. After all of these events have unfolded, war has happened. Abram just rescued Lot, and God shows up to Abram in a vision. God tells Abram not to be afraid. Could you imagine what that might have felt like when Abram had just gotten Lot, like, and the Lord shows up to him and says, do not be afraid. Like, was he a hunted man now? Was there retribution coming from the other kings? But, Ab but God is telling him, do not be afraid. And God establishes to Abram that he is Abram's king and that although he is wealthy, he is the true treasure that Abram has. And upon hearing these words, Abram is reminded of the promise that Abram's offspring were going to be innumerable and that his offspring would receive the blessing of the land of Canaan as their inheritance. Abram remembers the promise of God but doesn't understand how it will happen as he is a much older man and does not have a son to receive the future inheritance. There is no heir to the promise. In line with tradition, Abram believed that his servant Eleazar of Damascus was set to be his heir because of not having a son of his own. But God responds to Abram and tells him that he will in fact have an offspring. God tells Abram that his heir would be a son that was to be born to him. God then takes it a step further where he brings Abram outside and he shows him all the stars in the sky. And he says, count them. If you can count them, then that is how numerous your offspring will be. And Abram believed God that he would have offspring, and his faith in God was seen as being righteous. God then responds by reminding Abram that he had taken him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to bring him to Canaan, which he had promised to him and his offspring. Abram asks God how he will know that he will gain possession of the land of Canaan. And this is where the story gets really weird, because God tells Abram to go and get a, a heifer, right, a cow, a goat, a ram of three years old, and also a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram goes and he gets all these animals, and then he cuts them in half. The heifer, the goat, and the ram. And obviously not the birds, because they were too small. But after he does that, he takes them and he lays them in like an aisle fashion, apart from each other. So there's a half on each side, right? And after preparing that, some of these birds of prey, these bigger birds that were flying around, they saw the dead carcasses, and they're obviously wanting to feast, so they swoop in and they try to eat this meat, right? But Abram defends it 
because he's setting up what God has asked him, so he runs and he, and he shoes them away. And so they go away, but Abram being tired from preparing these animals and defending their carcasses sits down. Abram falls asleep, and God meets with him once again. And God tells Abram his plan in some very specific ways. God says that Abram's descendants will be strangers in a country that is not theirs. In fact, they will be slaves, and they are going to be mistreated for 400 years. However, God is going to punish those that mistreat Abram's descendants in that often and that after that, 400 years are up, Abram's descendants are going to come out of that foreign land with great wealth. However, considering Abram, he will die before he sees the promise completely fulfilled and be buried with his ancestors. God told Abram that the Canaanites, or people dwelling in the land, sin must reach complete measure before these things could happen. And the people of the land were not God-fearing people. They were wicked, and they sought after idols and offered sacrifices to false gods, and participated in unlawful sexual relations. That, later that day when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a burning torch passed between the divided halves of the dead animals Abram prepared. This was God committing to his oath or covenant to Abram. So there's kind of a lot going on here. And then after all that had happened, God told Abram that his descendants will possess the entire land of Canaan. So what we see in Genesis 15, see there's like a whole story going on there, but inside of that story there's a lot of dialogue that happens. And we see this real dialogue between God and Abram. And we aren't supposed to think that the questions that Abram are asking, because it would be really easy for us to do that, to look at it and say hey, he's doubting, or that maybe he's annoying or bothering God because you know when somebody comes to you and asks you a million times about something and then you have to repeat yourself you would get frustrated. It's not like that. We're not supposed to see that here. We might be tempted to believe that Abram was sitting in an incredible amount of disbelief, casting some sort of complaint towards God, but that's not what we're seeing here either. God and Abram are having a real conversation with one another. Abram is aware of the promises of God, but does not see them. So he is unsure of how they will happen. But God is inviting Abram to trust. So the big idea is that God promises us things that we don't see right away, but we are called to trust. And Abram is a great model of how to interact with God. We see a place where faith and questions meet between Abram and God, and Abram is honest with God, and God honors that honesty and actually converses with Abram. But I have some interesting factoids that I really wanted to point out to you guys before we jump in, um, because I think it really helps us understand the passage. Um, in verse 1, Genesis 15.1, when God tells Abram that he is his shield, what he's telling him is he's his king. And you see a similar example in Deuteronomy 33.29 where it says, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and glorious sword. When God says that he is Abraham's very great reward in that same verse, I thought I was going to be followed up here just so you guys could see it. Remember, in the Old Testament, when the tribe of Levi doesn't receive a portion of land because God is their portion, although Abram is promised offspring and land, we are to see God as Abram's most treasured portion. Abram's wealth is noted in Genesis 13.2. Abraham had become considerably wealthy in livestock and silver and gold, but God was essentially telling Abram that even though you have all of these things, I am your greatest wealth. Verse 2. 
Abram says that Eleazar will be his heir because it's customary in Hebrew tradition to pick out a trusted male servant or male member of your family when you do not have a child of your own that is a son. Abram is fairly old, so he's having a hard time seeing how he will father a child in his later years. And if you remember, we get to laugh later because at 100 years old, he becomes the father of Isaac when Sarah at 90 has Isaac. Verse 6, Abram believed that he would have offspring. When it says Abram believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. The belief was for the coming offspring. Uh, verse 7, when God tells Abram that he is the Lord who brought him out of Ur of the Chal Chaldeans to give him the land he was to possess, it was common at this time for the kings in their royal covenants to begin with identifying themselves and then to give an explanation of their past involvements. In verse 9, the heifer, the goat, the ram, the reason that they had to be three years of age was because that was the acceptable age for a sacrifice. So that number shouldn't be like, I wonder why they said that. It was just because it was the acceptable age for an animal to be sacrificed at that time. Verse 16, the sin of the Amorites that is being talked about having to be at full measure isn't some event or incident. Rather, it's an accumulation of all the sin that had taken place in Canaan. So these were the people of Canaan, these were the people not of God, they were worshipping idols, child sacrifices, religious prostitution, and divination. So magic, witchcraft, all those things that are separate from God, that's what was taking place here. And so it was showing us that God is incredibly patient, but that the determined amount of sin that they were going to commit had to reach its full before God would intervene. Verses 18 to 20, and this is that weird story we were talking about, and I think this is really important to explain um, it was an oath that was common for people to make in Hebrew culture where they would slaughter animals and create an aisle. It was called a maledic maledictory oath. And what it was was that somebody would make an oath to someone and then to seal that oath, they would walk through these carcasses. And as they walked through, what essentially was being said was that may my oath be true, and if not, may worse happen to me than what has happened to these carcasses. Pretty interesting, right? I'm glad we don't have to do that. So anyways, uh, I want to look at some points this morning. So our first point today is Abraham, from Genesis 15, has heard God, but doesn't see how the promise is possible. So Abram's comments that you first see in Genesis 15, 3, or two through three, are not from thin air. So he is referring to a promise that God had made him earlier in Genesis 12, two through three, when he was called to leave Haran for Canaan. And what it says is, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God has promised to make him a great nation, which meant that from Abram has to come a great group of people. You should acknowledge Abram's nation today as a spiritual person and not an ethnic group. But when we're talking about this, Abram is so concerned, right, with his heir that's coming from him. And so Abram has no son, no heir to the promise that has been made. So he asks God a very honest question, which we see in Genesis 15, 2 through 3. It says, but Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. And if you notice, in verse 2, there's a question mark. It wasn't a statement. So 
it's interesting at this point, right? Because we said earlier that Abram's 75 years old. And at this point in life, I'm thinking that having a baby is probably the farthest thing from Abram's mind. And I kept thinking about how, you know, he was probably settling in the land with his wife and they were probably enjoying that life together, right? I can only think of what they were doing before Netflix was available. But um, (laughs) could you imagine what that might have been like for Abram to know that he has offspring coming, but he's already 75 years old? And I was trying to think about what that would be like. And I was thinking about it would be like receiving an email from one of our more seasoned couples at the Refuge Church, like from the Tracys or from the Minters, that says, Dear Elders, we're considering having a baby. And when I thought about that, I was like, that would probably make me spit my coffee all over my laptop and I'd immediately be going to Best Buy to buy a new one, right? Because that would be extremely weird. But in the same way, have you ever thought that God was saying something to you, but because you couldn't see what he was orchestrating, you believed maybe it was impossible? I mean, considering Abraham's age, I'm sure he had a lot of of questions. The idea of God bringing an offspring to a really old man and old woman, his wife's only 10 years younger than him, seemed quite impossible. If you were going to do it, why didn't you do it when I was in my 20s or when I had a little more youth or a little more energy? But the impossible story made me think of another impossible story when I personally had walked in a, in a thought process where I kind of knew or thought I knew what God wanted, but the ideas or facts behind life made me think that it was impossible what he might do, kind of like Abram here. So the ideas of impossible stories reminded me of when Susanna and I first moved to Washington And I was fairly young, and I hadn't had much experience working with teenagers besides helping here and there at a youth group in New York. I had no college, as I was a college dropout, and I definitely did not have adequate Bible schooling. However, at my job at Starbucks, I met a pastor who I became friends with, and soon after our friendship blossomed, he said that he would love to have a young, energetic guy like me to come to his church and work with his youth. Now, I had no schooling to do this, but I prayed about it, and soon after... Susanna and I had accepted a position for me to be youth director at this pastor's church. Everything seemed okay for a while, but over time, things started changing. What we thought felt like home no longer felt like home. I think I was content to keep trying, but Susanna came to me one night and said, I believe God's telling us to go. And around the same time, another pastor who worked with me at the same place came up to me and told me that it was a fluke that I had ever gotten into ministry. And I was devastated because I didn't have schooling. I looked at the experience I had, or lack of, and I couldn't see how there was any other option out there for me. I remember nights that I argued with Susanna, countless arguments. You know the kinds when your spouse is right and you just don't want to admit it? I kept saying things like, I mean, that's true. I mean, I kept saying things like this. I'm sure you've all been in arguments like this. I said, Susanna, this is our moment. God led us here. I can't move on from here. I said, you're destroying my dreams. No one is going to hire me. I have nothing to show for myself. If I were to leave, this is only a blip on my resume, and it's not even a good blip. God's plan has to be for us to say, how can you not see that? Any other option in my mind was just impossible. So, of course, I decided in my mind to stick it out. Another month went by. Things went from hard to worse. Not only was it affecting my wife, but it started to wear on me. So I began to pray more seriously, and it was during that time that a friend from a local youth pastor group that I was a part of approached me. 
And he said, hey, I know a guy a few towns over looking for a fun youth guy, and I think he'd fit in. Remember, no schooling. There is no way this will work out for me. Now, if this scares anybody here, I want you to know that I'm a high honor student at Moody Bible now. So I am a work in process, and you guys can breathe, and you can live this life with me as we venture together. We're going to work together. We're going to grow together, right? So I visited with a man we all know, Dave Frederick, and after much conversation, visiting the coffee oasis and a bit of an interrogation of why I was running and being reluctant to send a reference, because remember, I was a fluke. I did. I actually sent the reference. I was offered the position as the first ever Oasis Center Supervisor of Bremerton, which I took and have been with the company now for 12 years. It didn't happen instantaneous. I thought it would be impossible. It wasn't exactly what I thought the plan for my life would look like. I thought I was going to be a youth pastor at a church somewhere. But I was bogged down with the impossibilities of the situation when God was telling my wife that there was something else for us and that he was already aware of all the details we were going to need to make that desire happen. Isn't this true sometimes? Doesn't God present his plan to us, but because we can't see the entire plan, we wonder if it's truly possible? Isn't this Abram in this story? God has made him a promise of an inheritance, but who is going to inherit this promise? I don't have a son. I'm 75. My servant Eleazar is going to be my heir. But God had other plans. Maybe this example doesn't fit you. Is the plan that God is giving you something that seems other than possible? Or maybe God wants reconciliation between you and someone else, but you don't think it's possible because it's been too long. Or maybe you're preparing to give up on something because you thought it was from God, but you just can't see how it's possible to accomplish and in our story this morning, here we see Abram. He isn't telling God it will never happen. He's asking God, what is the plan? Because right now, he doesn't see it. He's being honest with God. God, I know your promise that you have made, but I am not sure how it's going to happen. And that's where we should be when we don't understand the plan. Talking with God, asking him to show us the plan. Because right now, we just can't see it. Can we trust God when the plan doesn't seem possible? The second thing I wanted you to notice is that God reaffirms to Abram that he heard him correctly. Look at Genesis 15:4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. I wonder what Abram's face looked like at that moment. God doesn't have much room. God doesn't leave much room for Abram to wonder what's going to happen. He told him matter-of-factly, you are going to have a son. He states exactly what you mean. It's still going to happen, and this is crazy because this is still 25 years before it happens, which means there must have been a lot more dialoguing between then and the moment the heir came. Because I bet you there were times in there where he had those honest discussions where he was saying, is this still going to happen? Abraham asked God if Eliezer was to be his heir just one verse earlier because it doesn't he doesn't see how the promise of the offspring will happen. Abram then says it as a statement. So the first time it was a question, the second was a statement. This part of the interaction reminded me a little bit of when you're teaching a really small child. Sometimes when a child is learning to obey and trust their parents, they will repeat things several times and hope to learn the mind of their parents. At our house, we like to include our children in the things that we do. 
to kind of teach them, you know, things here and there. And who here has ever changed a diaper? I don't think anybody enjoys changing diapers. I do not enjoy changing diapers. And however, since Samuel is three, he's been learning how to help around the house. And so daddy and mommy will sometimes ask Samuel to go take care of his diaper. To which he might respond by asking, and throw it? Followed by a laugh. It's okay to laugh, guys. I laugh too sometimes. <laughs> we would then will respond, no, Samuel, go throw it away into the garbage can. He then responds, go throw it in the garbage can? And then we will say yes. To which he will repeat, I'm going to throw it away in the garbage can. Followed generally with a yup for me. To which he responds, I'm going to throw it into the garbage can because it's yucky. Right, Dad? And I respond again, yes. In which he responds, because it's yucky, I'm going to throw it away, right? To which I then respond, yes, Samuel, you throw your diaper into the garbage can because it's yucky. It's that same kind of childlike attitude that should fuel our questions during prayer. Samuel heard what we said. There wasn't a need to repeat it 20 times. But when we did that, it just reaffirmed to him what needed to happen when it comes to helping mommy and daddy. And in the same way, Abram, like a boy, is talking with his father and asking if he heard him correctly. So he's asking the question that he states it because that's what he's assuming he's heard from his father. And so God responds, Abram, this man will not be your heir. Someone is of your bones and blood. They are going to be your heir. So God repeats the promise to Abram. And Abram knew the promise. See, God had said this promise at very least two times prior. And you'll find that in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, and Genesis 13, 16. This wasn't a new concept, but Abram had to be reminded, right? So like Samuel, looking for directions from his parents and how to properly help us, Abram is looking for information how to better understand the promise. He's 75 years old. There's a gap here. Like, what's happening? How am I going to have an heir? Are you sure I'm going to have an heir? Or the Tracy's going to have an heir? <laughs> Today. <laughs> like, no. So, <laughs> so, God restates the promise and allows him to know that he had heard correctly. And that leads us to our third point, that God shows his promise to be more extravagant than what Abram had thought. And if you look at Genesis 15, 5, it says he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. It indeed, If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What's incredible about this statement is that this is not the first time an idea like this has been presented to Abram. God is really incredible about keeping with his promises. Let's look just a couple chapters earlier at Genesis 13, 16. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Doesn't that sound incredibly similar? Both of these tasks would be incredibly hard to do. Abram is so concerned with the heir to the promise that he's missing out on what God is saying. He's like the dad in the waiting room saying, oh, one, one boy, one boy, one boy to stretch the line. Right? And he's focused on that one boy. 
But God said, my promise for you is so much greater. The offspring I plan to give you will be innumerable. It's much greater than what he was imagining. In case you were wondering, I'm a proud daughter dad. I love my daughters. I'm not the guy. One son, one son. Okay. So, and as I thought of the promise involving counting stars, it reminded me of a verse in the Psalms about God. And it says, he determines the number of stars and calls them by name. Amazing. So here's God of the universe, the very one who determines the number of the stars and calling them by name, telling Abram that his offspring will be innumerable by man. But he knows what that number will be. I was also shocked to find out that there are literally 8,000 stars that one could potentially count in a Middle Eastern sky. So that should give us this idea that God is not only going to fulfill his promise of an offspring, but that Abram's descendants were going to be well beyond that one error. So while Abram is so much more concerned with the one, God's plan is bigger. A lot of times we think of the plan God has for us, and I think we think more manageable or practical, but God oftentimes has plans that are bigger than our plans. And it made me think of this story. I remember when I first started working at the Coffee Oasis 12 years ago and thinking that we had excellent resources to help at-risk and homeless youth. We had an outreach program that went out and talked to youth on the streets. We had case management that youth could get involved with to set life goals. We had drop-in centers that they could come and be a part of a community. But I also remember when a coworker came in and said that they believed we needed to finish the circle in our provision to at-risk and homeless youth. I didn't want to use the person's name because I don't want to embarrass them um, or give them credit that they might not want. By building a shelter. Now this wasn't going to be just any old shelter nearby. It was going to exist in the same building that we serve youth out of. This shelter would reside above the Coffee Oasis Cafe. I remember just thinking to myself, how on earth is this going to happen? This is going to affect so many other programs. It's going to make it harder. We would need staffing. We would need the right amenities. We were just not set up to be a shelter. Fast forward 12 years, and we are now standing below the only all-youth center for youth age 16 to 20 in Kitsap County. It not only resides above us, but it's a shared space during the day to the youth we serve. It has all the right licenses and amenities, and it's housed several youth from all over Kitsap County. And this has extended to supportive housing, which has extended to Hope Homes. Isn't that incredible? All because somebody trusted God's bigger plan than the plan that we were living in. I remember being caught up with all that stuff that we were doing that I wasn't seeing the greater picture of what God could have been calling us to. But it was so much more incredible than what I would have imagined. Have you asked God to show you what his plan for you is? Or have you allowed your conversation with God to have room for God to show you a plan that is much greater than what you could think imaginable? Are you concerned with the minute details? Or are you willing to entertain that his idea, his plan, his promise is way more extravagant than what yours is? This leads me to the fourth point. Abram believes but still has questions for God. Look at Genesis 15, 6 through 8. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Abram believed that an offspring was coming and it was counted to him as righteousness. God gives a short introduction, almost like a reminder of who he was to Abram and what he had done for him already. 
But Abram asks, how can I know that I will gain the possession of land? Don't we forget that fast? This is the same God that has brought Abram up out of the Ur of Chaldeans. To him, this land was to be taken possession of. Sometimes God does something in our lives and we are so excited about what he has done, but then not too long after, we forget. And then that's what makes that next part of that journey harder for us to see. We almost want Abram right here in this passage to almost like stop asking questions and believe everything. It's like Abraham just believed everything and it was counted as righteousness, but that's not what it says because God explains who he is right after and then immediately, even in his belief, he asks another question. How many times have you heard someone in conversation say, you just need to trust and believe? I've had so many people say that to me, and I'm, I get angry with that statement because I'm just like, what do you mean I do believe? What do you mean I do trust? I never stop doing those things. But that's not what God's doing at all. God responds to Abram, and Abram asks another question. Abram believes, but he's still taking another chance to ask another question. Do you ask questions like that? It seems like we almost have permission to ask God questions, even in our belief, because that's exactly what we see Abram doing. A couple things that I realized through that were, one, that this should show us that God is incredibly patient. He listens to us when we speak to him, because Abram was able to present himself thoroughly. And this should show us that our honest questions don't offend God. He knows what we think, so how could a question bother him? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So God states who he is, Abram asks a question, and then the unthinkable happens. And this is the final point, that God seals the deal with Abram. I thought that sounded so slick, so I wanted to keep it there, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so God doesn't get angry with Abram because of the questions he asks, right? He responds in an incredible way. If you look through verses 18 through 20, I'm not going to read them. God tells Abram to go get him a heifer, a ram, a goat, a dove, and a young pigeon. And we're just like, that's weird. And he slaughters the animals and he lays them in a space between them. And this is extremely hard for us because today when we approach God, we're not slaughtering anything. We're going to the sacrifice, Jesus. And we see God through the sacrifice and beautiful work of Jesus. But Abram brings forth animals that God requests, and then God makes that oath we talked about earlier, and he walks between the slaughtered animals, and he seals his promise. God tells Abram, may worse happen to me than what happened to these carcasses if I don't keep my end of the deal. But God isn't like man, so he cannot not keep his promise. He's going to keep his promise. So what was this for? Why did he have to do that? I think he was just showing Abram in a way that he would understand how true his promise was for him. So that as Abram would watch God, that smoldering fire pot and that torch going through the corpses of these dead animals, that God was dead set the same way his culture makes oaths, to make an oath with him so that he would know that that was true. Right? How incredible that must have felt for Abram with all these questions pouring out of his lips to see the God of the universe, the God who called him out of his birthplace, to give him a promise of the possession of the land, to seal his promise in a way that he could understand. Did you notice that in this passage that God answers every single question that Abram has regarding the promise that God made him? 
He didn't do so begrudgingly. He hears Abram out. He reaffirms the truth that Abram has heard. He calmly reiterates his promise and then seals it as an oath. God is completely approachable. He didn't cast Abram out for asking too many questions. He wasn't like we are with our neighbor Cindy, when uh, that's a bad name, Kathy. When Kathy comes over and Kathy is just talking to us, we're like, better not hang out with Kathy anymore because Kathy asks way too many questions. But God is welcoming Abram into a conversation with him where he is talking with God and he's asking him questions. Questions that, you know, some of us, because of the way we've been brought up, might feel inappropriate to ask God because it might look like doubt to us. But no, God is entertaining that and he's listening and then he's reaffirming to Abram, you heard me correctly. The things you heard me say are true and I'm going to keep my promise. And that's incredible. But he didn't have to do that, and he does, and that's amazing. It's amazing for us. So what do we do with all this information? One, have honest conversations with God. Tell God what you know about what you think is happening already. Like in a conversation, you know, like when you go to your friend and you're like, hey, I had a really rough night last night, um, you know, or I had a hard time sleeping. Like God knows everything, okay? So when we go to him and we're talking to him, it doesn't shock him when we talk to him like a normal person. It doesn't have to feel like a ritual. I came here and I used to go, dear God, every five seconds when I would pray. And I remember Dave Frederick said, why do you talk to him like you don't talk to anyone? He said, do you think you have to remind him of his name a million times? And I was like, you know, I never thought of that. And I was like, no. And so I stopped doing that. <laughs> it was weird. But it was good because I realized that God can talk with me as a real person. Um, ask the questions that you don't understand what he is doing. When you don't understand what he's doing, ask questions. He was so patient with Abram. He's going to be patient with you. Two, allow God to show you his plan. If his plan for Abram was much greater than Abram could understand, how would his plan for us not be greater? God has the full plan, not just the little details. He has it all, the whole thing. Don't get caught up in the little details. Eagerly go and ask him what his plan is and be open to it. And that's it. So talking to God is often in our mind harder than it needs to be. We see this in Abram this morning. We see Abram asking questions that God has already given the answer to, but instead of getting angry, God addresses the questions and he blesses Abram. Abram believed God, but he still had questions, and that is where we should find ourselves this morning. We hear the promise and plans of God, but because we don't always see it, we can ask God questions. Sometimes we might not ever see it. He doesn't get to see the fulfillment of the promise. Remember, he's sleeping with his relatives. He is buried with those of his line. However, that shouldn't hinder us from asking God questions. It's what we do with those questions. Don't allow it to become unbelief. Take it to God and allow him to show you as he did Abram. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we hear your promises so often, but we don't always see them. God, we want to be like Abram. We want to believe and have that counted to us as righteousness. God, help us to approach you as often as possible, that we would know your plan, that we would believe in your promises, that we would hope in your plan and promises, Father. I ask that you'd be with us this morning, be with us the rest of this week. In your son's name, amen.